Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. This week, we have Dr. Eben Alexander on the show. He's a famous neurosurgeon who taught at Harvard and and worked in Boston. And he had a near-death experience. And as a result, he was in a coma for a week and had some really profound experiences that changed his view of life as humans and what happens in the spiritual realm and all of that. I have some questions for him that focus on what ha- what's happening in my brain when I'm able to see inside people's bodies like a human MRI and facilitate healings and what happens with sacred acoustics? What's, what's the celestial music that we hear that with which we resonate? You know, we hear about choirs of angels singing and we discuss that. And then also how sound can help heal in surgery and in other modalities without having to be invasive. Nobody needs to be cut. So I know you're going to enjoy this. I'm looking forward to it myself. Be sure to subscribe and like and share with your friends. And let's talk to Dr. Alexander. Thanks so much for being here. I'm I'm delighted to finally get to meet you. I've been a fan from afar for many, many years. Well, Julie, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here today. Well, I was we were talking before we started recording that I had so many questions for you that I had to I spent the most time in my preparing for this conversation and whittling down the questions because I thought, well, I can't keep this man here for three hours. And uh, that that wouldn't be fair to you, but boy, I would love it. So we'll have to we'll have to do another one with their, my other half of my questions. Let's just start at the beginning. What happened when you had your near death experience? Well, uh, important to point out who I was at that time: a fifty four year old uh, fella who had uh, followed the conventional scientific training of materialism or physicalism. I taught. Uh, uh, neurosurgery for 15 years at Harvard Medical School, thought I understood something about brain-mind consciousness, but my experience showed me how absolutely uh, uh, minimal our knowledge is of such topics, because what happened to me was completely inexplicable based on our current conventional neuroscientific beliefs. And that has to do with the scientific evidence of damage to my neocortex. Uh, And it's important to point out and it's not just a story I tell in Proof of Heaven, but three doctors not involved in my care, but fascinated by my recovery, wrote a medical summary of my medical records in a case report that came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in September 2018. And the two major points they made, one point was my brain was in absolutely no shape to harbor any kind of dream or hallucination, much less the most extraordinary uh, kind of experience I've ever had in my life. It all occurred when my brain was demonstrably offline. 
The second, and this is a very crucial feature for anybody who misses the importance of that first statement, and that is my recovery is unprecedented in the medical literature. In fact, the the peer reviewers of of the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases challenged the three authors who wrote the case report, said this case is absurd. No one this ill from gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis, deep coma for a week, ends up making a full recovery. How do you explain it? And they said, it's because he had a near-death experience. And that was enough for the scientific peer review editors to go, okay, we've got an explanation. Let's move forward. And they they knew of other cases of near-death experiences where you get healing that goes completely beyond anything expected in, in medicine. And yet these cases are out there. So getting back to your main question, what happened to me? I want to briefly describe what I went through that week. And again, none of this should have been able to happen according to the tenets of modern neuroscience. That's a huge challenge to our working model of brain creates consciousness. Uh, Because in fact, what I found was my consciousness was liberated to a much higher level uh, at the time that my brain was incapacitated. And for me, uh, important to point out that my entire journey was in the state of amnesia. I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life, no knowledge of Earth, this universe, of humanity, etc. Every bit of that was gone. But I realized in the months and years after my coma that that amnesia was absolutely crucial for me to buy into the reality of it. Because if it had followed a more standard model, for example, if my adoptive father, who passed over four years before my coma, if he had been there front and center, I would have been a little more tempted in spite of a one in, uh, you know, million uh, diagnosis or one in 10 million and one in a billion recovery to just reject it as, oh, you see who you want to see on the way out. That's why I had to have this unusual experience with the amnesia. Very important. So it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, very primitive course on responsive realm, like being in dirty jello. Uh, I have uh, no body memory at any time did I have body awareness of any sort. I was simply an observing speck, observing what was going on around me. And initially, it was what I call the earthworm eye view, very primitive course, subterranean. But luckily, I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning white light that came towards me uh, with a perfect musical melody. And it opened up like a, a rip in the fabric of that ugly earthworm's eye view realm and led up into this brilliant, ultra real gateway valley. This is important. Many people who think, oh, a near-death experience is going to be vague and uh, murky and dreamlike, no. This existence in the material realm is vague and murky and dreamlike. That realm is absolutely shockingly uh, detailed, meaningful, alive, and transformational. Uh, That was the first gigantic surprise uh, going into that realm. Now, in in my transition going up through this uh, kind of wormhole or portal um, of light, uh, I entered what I call the Gateway Valley, and it had many Earth-like features, but also in many ways it was like Plato's world of ideals, uh, of a world of perfection, where we would that's where we would reunite with our higher soul, with our soul groups, go through a life review, where we witness the events of our life uh, and, and realize we're not judged by any higher power. We're judged kind of by our higher soul and our soul group. That's where the, any kind of sense of judgment comes in. But it's really just that ambience of pure, unconditional love at the core that provides the backdrop against which our life review events occur. And therefore, if we've been busy handing out pain and suffering to others, you know, through our lifetime, uh, hurting others, 
we have to be on the receiving end of that in the life review. That's how the life review basically serves as a course correction to help us learn to treat others as we would like to be treated. It's the golden rule written into the very fabric of the universe. And that's what I witnessed in that first passage. I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing in this gateway valley. There were millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in vast formations. Uh, and below us in this meadow were thousands of beings dancing. And when I came back to this world and wrote it all up weeks later, I said they were souls between lives because that's exactly what I perceived. Tremendous joy and merriment going on in these festivities down below. And it was all because they were being fueled up above by these swooping orbs of, of pure uh, kind of oval spiritual uh, beings that I, when I wrote it all up weeks later, called angelic choirs. And those angelic choirs were emanating chants, anthems, hymns that would just thunder through my awareness. And at uh, an early point in this journey on this butterfly wing with these millions of other butterflies, uh, I was aware of a soft summer breeze that blew through. And in many ways, that breeze changed everything. Even though my verbal description of what I saw might change, the emotional content and power uh, of that loving force uh, dramatically changed the nature of the experience. Because that soft breeze to me, I described it later as the breath of God, the divine wind. But it was my first knowledge of that infinitely loving and powerful God force. And of course, when I came back from all this, I realized that God was a puny little human word that had way too much baggage. And that's why in the book Proof of Heaven, I call that deity Om, because that was the sound I heard. That was the power, especially as I ascended to higher levels. And so to me, I, I knew, you know, it's a petty discussion as to whether or not you want to call this God or Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit, etc., because ultimately near-death experiencers of all different faiths and that includes near-death experiencers who were previously agnostic or atheist, uh, come back from this experience. 90% of NDEers over the last few millennia come back believing in a, the, a true, concrete, absolutely real God force of love and of benevolence at the core of the universe. Uh, and this is probably the biggest lesson from NDEs is the reality of that God force at the very core of our conscious awareness. So none of us are ever distant from that. Uh, so in, in my journey, in this beautiful Gateway Valley, all the festivities going on below, the angelic choirs above, uh, it turns out I wasn't witnessing that all alone. Uh, I had a beautiful companion on the butterfly wing, a beautiful young woman, sparkling blue eyes, high forehead, high cheekbones, broad smile, soft brown hair framing her lovely face. She was dressed in the same kind of simple yet colorful garb of all those beings down below in the meadow, all that dancing and festivity. And she looked at me with a look of pure love. And she never said a word. She never had to. Her emotional truth came into my awareness telepathically. Very common in these kinds of encounters. And that message to me that she delivered, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply uh, cared for. Uh, was the most reassuring and affirming part of this entire journey. Uh, and I think that was ultimately the message I was to bring back here because I realized by that time in the journey that this is a spiritual home. It felt very familiar. It felt like exactly where I was supposed to be, a place of comfort. Uh, it's where we are between lives. It's what we go through to, with our soul groups to plan next incarnations, that kind of thing. 
Uh, and so for me, though, the interesting thing is the angelic choirs above provided yet another portal. Uh, and I, all of their hymns and chants, all of it coalesced into this beautiful spiral of light that ushered me up again into higher and higher levels. Important to point out, sound, music, vibration is uh, the catalyst that I sensed that enabled my soul to maneuver between these various levels of the spiritual realm. And of course, I'm sure the audience does not need to be reminded that these are sounds that are far more perfect and ideal than any form of music you could ever hear with physical ears here in our four-dimensional space-time. That music goes, it's the ideal form. It's what I think composers often hear when they're deeply inspired by the universe to bring such music to us. It's the, the music they bring in is limited by space-time uh, and by physics. And yet in those realms, the ideal forms emerge, which are beautiful beyond description. So at any rate, this, uh, this uh, next portal created by the angelic choirs led me up into what I call the core, infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the divine love of that God force, that co-creative force at the core of the universe. Uh, and in the core realm, all dualities resolve, uh, all, you know, good, bad, uh, dark, light, uh, masculine, feminine, etc. Every bit of it is combined into oneness uh, in the core realm. Uh, and that's where I witnessed the, the very origin of conscious awareness as being sourced directly in what we often call source, that God force, and realizing the powerful uh, love and binding force of love and how it brings wholeness and healing to our lives. Now, it turns out there were many things to be taught in the core and in the Gateway Valley. In fact, the first time I entered the core, I was told, you're not here to stay, you'll be going back, but we'll teach you many things, not in words, but in pure conceptual flow. And then the lessons, and the lessons are things I've spent the last 15 years delivering in hundreds and hundreds, over 700 interviews and presentations now. Uh, since all this happened back in 2008, uh, I first started giving talks about it in 2010. That's a lot to unpack, what There's you just there. shared. So that just gave me another five pages of questions for you. <laughs> and the first one, and, and, and it may be all covered in your third book, so please give us a synopsis. I learned how to be a medical intuitive and psychic medium. I did not grow up with dead people chasing me, or if I did when I was little, I wouldn't have known what to do with that. But I am able to scan somebody anywhere. If you were in a different galaxy far, far away, I, I'm like a human MRI. I can see, you know, bacterial infections, viral infections, broken bones, cancer, whatever, facilitate energetic healings, communicate with deceased loved ones, past life stuff, remote viewing, all of that stuff. What's happening in my brain? And I turn my abilities on and off at will. It takes a nanosecond. I don't, and this is what I teach people all over the world. I don't have to meditate for an hour first, stand on my left leg, raise my right hand and twirl three times. I just turn it on and off in a nanosecond. I so what's I happening? I'll teach you how to do that. I, I teach people how to from, do that. I, I will teach you how to do that. We'll talk about that after we're done recording. What's happening in my brain? The other thing too that's interesting is I say it's a good thing I'm a girl because I can multitask because it's a female superpower, but I'm watching a scan in my head. I'm watching a healing happen. Sometimes 
It's using methodologies and devices that are well known in our Western medicine. Some it's with uh, devices and methodologies that haven't been invented yet. So I'm watching all this stuff. I'm getting what I call divine downloads into my head and I'm having a normal conversation with you and I'm totally coherent. I'm not in a trance. I'm not in meditation. What's happening in my brain from a physiological standpoint? What do you think's going on? Well, what I will tell you, um, I think what's happening is your brain is getting out of the way. And I'll give you, here's the evidence of, that I'll follow for that kind of argument. There have been a series of papers that have been published in the scientific literature in the last 12 years using functional MRI and magnetoencephalography, which are very powerful techniques to look at the brain and look at individual neuronal networks uh, and kind of understand their function in the, mo- in the moment. So, uh, and the interesting thing about these papers, the first one came out in 2012. It's from Imperial College in London by Dr. Robin Carhart Harris. And that particular paper looked at psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, which are unknown serotonin 2A um, uh, psychedelic. I call them entheogens. Uh, I would tell you the word hallucinogen is improper. Never use the word hallucinogen because that implies that what you're seeing is not real. And what we know is what people see in those settings can have a tremendous amount of reality to it once we understand how to explain it. But what you find is that the brain is going dark. In fact, this was such a shock to the scientists who wrote this first paper on it that Christoph Koch, who was the head of Paul Allen's Neuroscience Research Center in Seattle back in, um, in uh, 2012 when the paper came out, he wrote an essay in Scientific American saying, guess what? Your brain on drugs goes dark. It gets out of the way. This surprises every materialist who has ever taken such substances because anybody who takes them, including LSD, DMT, uh, you know, the active principle in ayahuasca, uh, the studies in all of these substances show the same thing. The brain is not doing it. There's no part of the brain that increases its activity. In fact, the default mode network which is a specific network that seems to be kind of our uh, lying here with our eyes closed, doing nothing but ego presence uh, mindset, that default mode network just disappears under the influence of these substances. So in other words, if you're trying to look at the physiology of the brain and what are known as the neural correlates of consciousness, NCC, to explain the experience on these substances, forget it. It's not going to work because it's not happening in the brain. The main action of the brain is to get out of the way and allow a much richer connection with that primordial mind, with that Akashic record, with that quantum hologram, whatever you want to call that information field that we're accessing uh, that has memories and other things. Uh, and yet but there's I'm, also- but I'm doing but I'm doing them simultaneously and I'm very conscious. I'm having a conscious conversation. I'm watching the healing in my mind. You're simply I, demonstrating. I'm, I'm also making notes because I always send a follow up email. Well, here are references. So I'm doing it all being conscious. I always tell people no drugs needed, you know, and the woo woo. What you can access is so much. I haven't ever done the drugs, but from what I've read, it's so much more magnificent and gives you so much more clarity. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, what, what gives you the more clarity? 
Well, not being on LSD, Correct. just turning the ability exactly. on and off. That's yeah. why in our book, we make the point that it's much better to approach these things through meditation. Now, I know you don't even need meditation. Uh, no. Somebody like and I me, don't teach, you know, as I don't much teach as my that. intuition and empathy increased after my NDE, uh, and I had some microelectronic effects like streetlights going out when I walked under them, or watches, took me free watches, find one that worked. My computer crashed all the time, which I thought was outsourcing to China. But in fact, it turns out it was just the acute after effects in the first six months after my NDE. But I would love it if I had those skills. And yes, I look forward to talking with you about how to get them because I know other people who've had NDEs and ended up being very powerfully medically intuitive. Even though I, I sense my medical intuition is improved, I, I really don't sense that I get enough information to where I can really trust myself to do that, except in a meditative state. In meditation, I think I can get to uh, pretty uh, impressive successes. But, um, you know, just in the normal waking state, I really can't do that. So I, I look forward to talking with you about that later. Well, what I teach is that the head is like a big satellite dish and it receives and transmits frequencies. And so you just, whatever you're thinking of, that tunes the satellite dish to that channel where that, like that radio station, where that information is coming in. I have a communications degree with a minor in marketing. I'm an inventor of surgical devices sold throughout the world. How's that work? That was long before I learned how to do woo-woo. I had an idea. I was tuned to that channel and I got information in it and I hired a bunch of great engineers that drew up what I was envisioning. So the other thing that's interesting and in what I teach too is you can communicate with any spirit, whether they're attached to a body or not. Who do you want to talk to? Your dead grandma? You want to talk to Elvis? You want to talk to George Washington? It doesn't matter. You think of them, that immediately tunes your satellite dish head to their frequency that they keep throughout all their lifetimes. And it opens a two-way radio, something similar to that. And that's how you communicate telepathically. Well, I can, I can do that in meditation, and I can be pretty effective at that in meditation. But I must say, um, and I meditate a lot, which I am sure has changed my kind of waking mindset over the years. And yet I still don't feel that I um, have a reliable way of just seeing spirit and medical intuitive information, you know, in the normal waking state. Past lives are really fun, too, because, and this is interesting, this came into me, I, I never read it that anybody was doing this, but I envisioned myself in this endless hallway, very narrow walls, very tall ceilings. And on the walls are 12 inch by 12 inch square mirrors lined up perfectly horizontally and, and uh, horizontally and vertically. And each mirror represents a different lifetime. So we'll say, okay, does Evan have a past life in which he was interested in brain stuff. And then the mirrors that correlate with that will come out from the wall as if they're on a hydraulic arm. And then I'll say, show me the one that correlates the most. That one will come out the farthest. I'll imagine walking into it. I'll be shown this scene. It's like I'm walking in a scene in a movie. I'll be given where it was, when it was, what your name was, all this information. M most of the time we can corroborate it with historic documents online. And that's really fun when that happens. And then we correlate it with what's going on in your current life and how does it relate? So spirit 
communicates in symbols, as you mentioned earlier, from your NDE. And I've been told that that's the language of spirit. Because when I'm doing a medical scan on somebody, you know, I may tell them their elbow looks like whipped cream or something crazy, but it's to bypass the conscious mind, go right into the subconscious because it helps integrate the healing into the body. So it's fascinating. Who do you think that that woman was with the blue eyes that was on the other well, butterfly wing? Was, was that your guardian and, angel? And it's a, uh, kind of a spoiler alert, so I, I'm not going to share it fully. Okay. Uh, but right. in the book Proof of Heaven, at the very end of the book, you find out exactly who that woman is. And in fact, I, I would say for a lot of people, that is the mind-bending shock of the book. They kind of go, oh, my God. And yeah. uh, so I'm not going to share it all, but the, you do find the answers in that book. And it's uh, it's truly a mind-bender, especially when I look back on my life and all the events of my life and realize just how crucial that particular aspect of it was. Uh, that discovery, which basically her identity proved to me the reality of the of the spiritual journey. All right, let's go back a little bit. Like I said, I got lots of questions for you, and I'm really interested in the sacred acoustics, so I want to spend a bunch of time on that. But I've heard you say that unconditional love has an unlimited ability to heal. What do you mean by that? Well, it basically means that we're all truly in this together. I mentioned uh, a little while ago when I was telling my story about the life review. Life reviews happen in 25 to 50% of NDE accounts. They've been occurring for at least 2,400 years, going back to the time of Plato. And um, the life review really shows us that we're sharing the dream of the one mind. We see ourselves and our culture as separate, but in near-death experiences, what you find out is, no, 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 we're sharing one mind. We're all in this together. And that process of learning and teaching is one of individual sentient beings interacting and learning for themselves the various rules that govern this universe. And one of the most important rules to be learned by humanity over the last few thousand years is that we're sharing one mind and that we're bound together through the forces of love as near-death experiences have been talking about for thousands of years. So it's really just an indicator that we're all truly in this together. When we leave our physical body, we find that in that life review, we relive the events of our life in very real fashion. Uh, and, and it's a reliving, not a remembering. Very important to point that out. This is not some vague, dreamy, murky uh, review of events of your life. It's an active, dynamic, powerful reliving from the perspective of all souls involved. And that's why if you're busy handing out pain and suffering to others, watch out in your life review because you'll be on the receiving end of every bit of that because that's how we learn uh, that we're all in this together and to treat each other with, you know, compassion, with mercy, acceptance, forgiveness when necessary. These are the deep lessons of NDEs that we're all here to learn. And it has to do with the most profound lessons that come from uh, these spiritual epiphanies. And, uh, you know, people have achieved this kind of thing also through hypnosis and through meditation. Um, and the only other thing I would point out about the psychedelic substances is uh, not only am I glad that many papers now prove that the brain is not creating consciousness because we've looked at uh, LSD, DMT, psilocybin, other things from the same perspective and find the same thing. The brain goes dark. But also, importantly, they're being used now uh, for the treatment of some of the worst ego toxicities, like the worst addictions and the worst fear of death in terminal cancer patients. 
uh, and you can use psilocybin one dose uh, in a proper therapeutic setting gives you six, 12 months, if not longer, of cure in 80% of cases, cure of, of those uh, ego fears of death and of the ego uh, issues of addiction, uh, nicotine, opiates, et cetera. So if one dose of, of, of such a substance, which I call entheogen, God within is basically what entheogen means, uh, this is ex- letting us get, uh, um, gain access to our higher soul. Uh, and that's where I would say this kind of healing comes from. Uh, and I would also argue that you don't need that one dose of the uh, uh, psilocybin or what have you, that in fact, a proper program of meditation where you, you're able to put the ego into time out and allow your higher soul, a much grander aspect of you, the part that expands when the brain and body die, uh, that's the part that you want to exercise communication with and, and uh, interacting with. And that's what you can do in meditation. Uh, so in other words, I, I would say that meditation will get you into the same territory, and that's the study that I need to do next. There's already a, a brilliant study uh, using uh, sacred acoustics and proving in a, a, a placebo-controlled environment that uh, sacred acoustics tones can uh, get rid of anxiety. Uh, basically, 26% of anxiety symptoms gone in two weeks, uh, compared to only 7% in the control group from a busy Manhattan uh, psychiatric practice in a peer-reviewed journal. Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease is published by Dr. Anna Yusum in, uh, I think it was in February of, of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, Dr. Anna Yusum. But very powerful uh, acknowledgement of sacred acoustics in alleviating anxiety. And of course, those of us who use a lot realize it goes much further than just alleviating anxiety. Most of us have busy lives and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals. B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals, dot com, and use Julie Ryan at checkout, and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. It's interesting to me that you're talking about how the uh, medicines, the drugs, whatever you call it, magic mushrooms, how they can integrate somebody's humanity into their lives. Because a lot of surgeons that I know who are friends and colleagues have told me over the years that they separate when they're in the OR. They are just so focused on the task at hand that they have to separate from the patient and the personality of the patient and all of that and rely on anesthesia, you know, to make sure the patient's doing okay as far as all their vitals and everything. And 
they we've had conversations about that that spills over into their everyday lives that separating you know the humanity thing from the clinical thing before your nda did you feel that have you given that any thought well i can say that surgery i explained a lot of this in proof of heaven uh but it uh it was absolutely a flow state experience for me i could be you know, clipping an aneurysm or taking out a skull-based tumor or what have you. Uh, and really, the last two or three hours might have seemed to have gone by in two seconds. Uh, likewise, uh, the last two seconds might have seemed like an hour. So you have tremendous time dilation. You have uh, this incredible focus on um, the task at hand that elevates you far beyond any kind of ego mind, et cetera, and allows you to really interact most directly with trying to bring healing and wholeness to that patient. So I'm very familiar with that kind of thing. And yes, it, it ends up that after you spend all those hours in the OR, uh, in my training, we were working 120 hours a week. Um, and uh, sooner or later, that starts to impinge on the rest of your life. So I would say, yes, I'm very familiar with that kind of ego dissolution through intense focus on something as extreme as surgical intervention uh, in somebody's brain or spinal cord. Well, along along that uh, <coughs> thread, <coughs> excuse me, of being in the zone, basically what you just described, when I'm scanning somebody that's in the OR and I'm doing remote viewing and I'm working with their loved ones, I'm on the phone with them, I can read the anesthesia equipment. I can tell you how many surgeons are in there. I can tell you where they are in the case real time. But from a spiritual standpoint, the patient's guardian angels always over the head of anesthesia. There are always surgeon spirits that are guiding the actual surgeons. And then the deceased loved ones are in a kind of an amphitheater horseshoe pattern at the foot of the OR table. And I have a chapter in my book, Angelic Attendance, about this. And the thing that's so interesting, and you touched on this a minute ago, was is the more prayer being said for the patient, the more spirits that are in the OR. There is an absolute 100% correlation in my non-scientific study. When I'll see tons of people their spirits in the OR, and I'll say, is it sure grandma on the prayer chain someplace or something? Because there's always a correlation there. What, what do you think is going on with that? Well, I think that, I mean, you're simply uh, stating that uh, we're spiritual beings in a spiritual universe. And when we're connected with the spiritual world, when we're aware of it, uh, when we're cognizant and paying attention, we recognize that we have a lot of help. Uh, in fact, I would say a tremendous amount of what we witness today going on in this world, especially things that seem to be supporting this line of evidence and, and the cultural transformation and awakening that's involved with this kind of knowledge, uh, the more we realize that it's being greatly helped from those on the other side, those who have passed over. And I came to recognize that uh uh, pretty early on after my coma, I remember a very close uh, friend, uh, Marvin Hamlish, uh, who's a musical composer. And I, one of my favorites on he, the he's ever. A, he's a true favorite of mine too. Well, he also became a close friend because one of his family members was a patient of mine. Uh, but the interesting thing is when, when Marvin heard, uh, about my experience, I sent out DVDs of the talks I was giving two and a half years before proof of heaven came out. 
So there were some DVDs of my talks on this topic uh, that preceded the book by several years. And I sent one to Marvin. And as soon as he saw it, he said, I've got to come by. And on, I think it was December 6th of 2010, uh, Marvin was giving a concert up in West Virginia, but he landed in Raleigh and he had his limo bring him through Lynchburg, where I lived at the time. And he, he was there visiting for about two hours uh, to tell me that this would make an incredible movie. Now, I had not even thought of it as a book yet. I thought of it more of a, a scientific paper, neuroscientific paper discussing the the problems with the materialist model of brain creates consciousness. And so to be talking about a movie, he jumped way ahead of me. But then interestingly enough, um, uh, uh, a year or so later, I don't remember the exact date, but when I was finally meeting a movie agent in the office of my book agent, you know, after Proof of Heaven had come out and it garnered so much interest in Hollywood because of the success of the book, uh, I was sitting there in the waiting room getting ready to go in and meet the movie agent, when I got a text that Marvin had passed over. And that's when I realized, uh, especially in how everything unfolded from there, that, you know, initially, my initial thought was, oh, no, Marvin could have helped so much to bring this to fruition. Then I realized when I met the movie agent with all the enthusiasm and power uh, that it then launched me into Hollywood with all these discussions with various movie, movie groups, I realized Marvin was still helping from the other side tremendously. And I've seen that same kind of phenomenon happen with other loved ones and, and close friends and colleagues who passed the other side. And then I end up seeing evidence that they're, they're actually seeming to help as much, if not more from the other side as they were from this side. And, uh, you know, I have, I have no doubt that acknowledging and recognizing that we have angels uh, and that our angels are there for our benefit. And the more we can invoke that, uh, through prayer and meditation and just kind of uh, living that reality, the more helpful it is to us in living these lives. Well, and to that point, I've talked to, uh, I don't even know how many tens of thousands of spirits, maybe hundreds of thousands over the years, and they all just want to help, but they're not going to interfere. They they need us to ask has been my experience. And I actually talked to a, a woman on the show, Perdita Finn, who talks about every morning she gets up, she does her meditation, she says her prayers, and then she assigns tasks to all of her deceased loved ones. Okay, I need you to do this today. I need you to do that today. I need you to intervene in this. And it works. It's really remarkable, the results that she gets from all of that. Well, and to your point earlier as well, when somebody is dying, our deceased loved ones are all there. That's what I see when I'm scanning somebody who's dying. I can tell how close to death they are. I can tell you who the spirits are in the room. There's a configuration of angels and deceased loved ones. And and when I was writing my book, I I wanted to research where the prayer in paradisum came from, said at the end of every Catholic funeral. I was born and raised Catholic, 12 years of Catholic schools. Because what I what that prayer talks about is the angels and your loved ones will deceased loved ones will lead you in in uh, lead you into paradise, greet you and lead you into paradise. So I was researching that. Well, I found out it originated as a fifth century Gregorian chant, back to the sacred acoustics. And so I have to believe that perhaps it took until the fifth century till people were well educated enough. Usually it was men in monasteries and synagogues 
who could write down, in this case, in the form of a chant, what everybody was witnessing when somebody was dying. And I think that's a great lead in into these this sacred acoustics. Back 30 years ago, when my son Jonathan was a toddler, I had the Grammys on and Guns N' Roses or some rock band was performing and he was playing with his little toys and not paying any attention. Well, then Placido Domingo comes on and he's singing something from Carmen or some other opera. And that baby stood smack dab in front of that TV, did not move. And then when it was over, he went back to playing with his toys. Furthermore, when he was a freshman in high school, my husband Tim and I were at his concert, his choir concert, and they sang Poulenc's Gloria. And in that Gloria is a soprano solo. And during that, I had tears streaming down my cheeks. And my husband looked over, he said, what's the matter? I said, I have no idea. I don't know. I wasn't upset. What I think is that obviously a portion of Jonathan as a toddler and me when he was a freshman in high school and many times since, we're recognizing something subconsciously. Sacred acoustics, tell us about that. Well, I was first drawn to uh, meditation about two years after my coma. I'd read about 150 books on consciousness, physics, uh, spiritual traditions, East and West, uh, uh, you know, trying to make sense of it all. And I realized that the only way for me to really dive deep into exploring my uh, spiritual journey in the NDE was to start meditating. And I was immediately attracted to something called binaural beats. Uh, and briefly for your audience, binaural beats were, uh, were first, uh, first discovered by a Prussian physicist, Wilhelm Heinrich Dove, uh, back in the, uh, in the, I'm sorry, uh, back in the 1800s. And, uh, and then it turns out that, um, it's discovered in the late 20th century by Robert Monroe, uh, and other investigators of remote viewing that out-of-body experiences and remote viewing, both methods of extended consciousness, non-local consciousness, expression, and remote viewing has been scientifically studied and validated uh, to be a completely reliable and powerful technique for energy, uh, information acquisition. Um, and so uh, binaural beats were found to enhance these abilities. Uh, and that's what I knew. And uh, for me, uh, there was an article in Scientific American by Gerald Oster back in the early 1970s about binaural beats. And it went through the neuroanatomy and it made perfect sense to me what was going on, that these beats, by using a slightly different frequency to the two ears, um, they're, they're influencing circuits down the lower brainstem. I'll point out that any kind of chant or anthem or hymn that you've ever heard uh, that might have induced to some transcendental spiritual state or what have you, uh, is processed up in the acoustic cortex and the temporal lobes and circuits that basically have evolved in the last two or three million years in Homo sapiens and primates. Very different are the circuits that handle sacred acoustics and binaural beats. They're way down in the lower brainstem. Uh, they actually affect a circuit that is so old it came around 300 million years ago before mammals even walked the earth. In fact, that circuit was a, a, a spatial localization system for auditory threats. So when you hear a snap behind your head, that very same circuit, the superior olivary nucleus, calculates 
uh, the arrival time of those sound signals going a thousand feet per second differently to the two eardrums because of that high speed and the very accurate timing mechanism in the lower brainstem. But we can harness that timing mechanism in the lower brainstem to modulate uh, the upflowing signals that neuroscience says are important for kind of a now moment. Um, and not to go into too much neurophysiologic detail, but the bottom line is the reason sacred acoustics and similar tones can have such power is because they, um, they take us way down in the evolutionary history of the anatomy of the brain. There's an old principle uh, in evolution that if you really want to get at a function and understand a function more deeply, in this discussion, the function would be consciousness. You need to follow the evolution of the anatomy of that anatomic structure that's associated, in this case, the brain, looking at the brain going way back in its evolutionary history. And you find that that modulatory capacity uh, is something that can modulate consciousness at a very deep level. And I believe what's going on is these tones are enabling our conscious awareness to escape the uh, illusion of a here, now, and sense of self. And, uh, and it's by this oscillation in the lower brainstem. I mean, when you hear about things like hypnosis, you hear people using a pendulum, you know, to get the eyes to move back and forth. Or likewise, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, often used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, very effectively, I might add. But EMDR is using a circuit in the midbrain, which is a more recently evolved circuit, to oscillate by eye movements. And again, oscillations in the lower midbrain can lead to transcendental states of conscious awareness. And when you go even lower down into the medulla, which is what sacred acoustics does, um, and other binaural beat brainwave training, you get at that superior olivary nucleus, uh, that's when you really get the big power. And that's why if you go to sacredacoustics.com, read through her testimonials page that Karen has assembled there, you'll find many examples of people who've had a tremendous amount of healing and other great effects of conscious mind over matter of through using sacred acoustics tones. And that includes things like connecting with souls of departed loved ones, etc. It's really a way of traversing that veiling function of the brain and becoming a cultivating relationship much more directly with that primordial mind and with that information field and with that primordial consciousness that is really the mind of the universe that we all share. I would think, too, that there are frequencies that we can access that perhaps our modern day equipment can't detect yet that we're accessing with, back to the example of my child, or my son, who's now an adult, when he was an infant, or not infant, a toddler, what was he accessing that he remembered to he stop him? He was accessing the same thing track. all of us do when we access our memories. Our memories, and this is discussed in great detail in Living in a Mind for Universe, our memories are not stored in our brains. Period. End of story. Uh, right. uh, Past lives? Sorry? Past lives and lives Not in between in lives. Brain. None of it is stored in the brain. It's stored right. in an information field that our brain has access to. And there's right. a tremendous principle of resonance in that field of information, which is why a soul seems to hew very closely to a set of memories and history and, and other loved ones, etc., because of that resonance. Very important. Now, when you talk about frequency, the frequencies involved in the sacred acoustics tones 
are very different. These are kind of universal frequencies that are used um, to get into certain states. And, and we define them by labeling the, the arithmetic difference between the two input tones. So for example, if I, I have 100 cycles per second in this ear, 103 cycles per second this ear, I'll get a three cycle per second wavering tone uh, down in the delta range. Okay, so that would commonly be used for delta, very deep dive meditation. But also we use a lot of theta. In fact, we found out when I went to uh, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies and they did my EEG after my coma, it turns out I spend a lot of time in theta. Most adults do not. Most children spend a ton of time in theta. That's when they're learning everything so effectively. Uh, young children are in theta, and I was in theta, you know, years after my, uh, two or three years after my coma when that was assessed. But with sacred acoustics, we can, uh, for example, put in a six hertz uh, frequency difference between the two sides. And in fact, in a, a you'll, if you listen to sacred acoustics, you'll realize they're very complex, multi-layered attempts. And what you'll find is that, for example, if they're, if, uh, uh, Karen and Kevin are sound engineer trying to deliver a three hertz, uh, a signal, they might use multiple different, uh, harmonically related uh, carrier tones that have a three hertz difference between them, but they they can be hundreds of cycles per second different from each other. Uh, and yet they're, they're strengthening that one three hertz, you know, or, or that would be delta or a six hertz theta or even a nine hertz alpha uh, tone. So we use the difference in frequency to drive different kind of frequency ranges, but those have nothing to do with the ultimate frequency of your overlap and resonance with that information field. That could be a much higher frequency set. What we're doing with the sacred acoustics tones is simply setting the stage for your conscious awareness to be liberated from the shackles of the physical brain and body. That's essentially what we're doing. And, and uh, it uses those circuits in the lower brainstem. And when you think about it, you can see why we argue for using tones as far more powerful than uh, psychedelic or entheogenic substances. And that's because those substances are just having a superficial effect up in the neocortex, whereas the tones are having a very deep and powerful effect way down in your lower brainstem to truly liberate your conscious awareness outside of space and time. And that's why I think the tones ultimately will be a far more powerful way of doing this than just taking a pill or eating some magic mushrooms or what have you. Well, back to Jonathan when he was a toddler, when I watched that, I thought, okay, the, he's connecting to this. This is some, and again, I wasn't into woo-woo yet. And I thought, okay, so we started playing classical music every night at dinner. And then by the age of about four-ish, three and a half, four, from four to probably five and a half, every night after dinner, he would get up and put on, back then we had VCRs. So he'd put the VCR tape in for river dance. And we had this bank of windows and he would dance to the Irish music in front of the windows and watch his reflection. He, he's going to be mortified if he hears I've shared this. But there was something again that was happening. And, and I'm wondering obviously in the ancient chanting and all of that, as well as the old masters, the Beethovens, the Mozarts, the Vivaldis, all those guys, there were writing in a frequency that was something that we were all able to access from our memories, not in our brains, from past lives and other dimensions. I have to assume 
that was the case. Is that the case? I would say in your very opinion? much so. So it's a process of resonance. And that's the important thing. And that's why, for example, a huge part of this discussion is all the scientific data for um, past life memories in children suggestive of reincarnation. And it really doesn't matter if you believe in reincarnation or not. From a scientific perspective, it's been proven. Reincarnation is absolutely real. So just get used to it. If you want to learn more about it, go to uvadops.org and look at some of the research they've done. But to date, more than 2,700 cases of past life memories in children that they've investigated. Of those cases in the last six decades, 1,700 of the cases are solved. That is, they found the person who the child claims to be. So those are very real aspects of the research. And so the people who do this research realize that that reincarnation is absolutely real. There's some fashion in which we come back again and again. But what they tell you is you must harvest those memories before age five or six. Because in most of us, after age five or six, any memories of past lives and between lives get covered over by natural processes. So most of us say, what do you mean past life? I don't remember a past life. Well, that's because it's been covered over. But that's the, the, the natural history of those things. But the important point I'm trying to make here is that identifying with that soul group and finding those soul mates uh, is all a process of resonance. You don't have to work at it. It's a natural thing as we get in there. We identify with the angels that are helping us, with souls of departed loved ones, etc. It's all going at a certain frequency that we know well. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, for example, if you look at telepathy, one of the most ready groups to demonstrate telepathy and are identical twins. If you read Guy Leon Playfair's book, Twin Telepathy, you'll find he says 35% of identical twins have very powerful telepathic experiences. It's because their DNA allowed them to have a nervous system that had such a resonance, such a similarity to other nervous systems that they very easily have mind overlapping across these nervous systems. But similar effects occur just with our kind of soul connection with loved ones. And that's why in my own particular story, it's especially important to point out that once you've read Living in a Mindful Universe, in addition to Proof of Heaven, you realize I had very strong tendencies of connection, not only with my uh, birth family, but with my adoptive family. And all that is especially shown when you read Living in a Mindful Universe and realize the incredible connection I had with my adoptive father two and a half years after uh, my coma experience. Uh, but it all has to do with resonance. And it's not something you have to worry about. It's not like you have to track the particular uh, number that associates with that resonance. It's something you'll recognize naturally in the journey. Uh, and I'll also point out for people who are worried, most of these journeys do not involve amnesia. That was very peculiar to my case only because of the kind of, uh, you know, these are, NDEs are always tailored to the individual who's having them. And for me as a neurosurgeon interested in consciousness, my NDE was absolutely going to involve a richer demonstration of the phenomenon of consciousness and the brain-mind connection. Uh, and that's why it was essential that it could not follow the standard paradigm because if it had, I would not have accepted the deep and profound reality of it that seems so self-evidential from the experience itself. Well, my I have a series of four children's books that are picture books, and I was asked to write them by moms whose 
children, you know, knew they were talking to deceased loved ones in the room and these people have been dead for 20 years. These kids never met them or they knew information that there's no way they could know because they couldn't read yet. And then the past life stuff, they were able to corroborate with uh, historic documents. So yeah, it's really interesting how that goes. Let's pivot for just a, a minute or two in my last series of questions for you. I'm really interested in what you're doing and what you're exploring to use sound in surgery and sound for healing. Well, mainly through meditation and using of, of sacred acoustics. As I said, if you go to sacredacoustics.com and look at the testimonials page that Karen has set up, you'll realize people have had a tremendous number of positive responses and, and kind of things that have happened while listening to these tones to kind of help them in their spiritual journey. So um, my work is uh, heavily focused now on the workshops we give, and we give these by Zoom, and we give them uh, on location around the world, even though, of course, with the pandemic, all that dynamic has shifted, although it's the world is waking back up and inviting us to give more of these sessions uh, live. Uh, but we love doing them uh, by Zoom online, too, because Originally, initially, we were a little worried that they wouldn't have the same power. You know, you get this kind of group energy in meditation that's very strong, especially when everybody's in this one room together. But what we found is it works very well in groups that are spread out on a Zoom call all across the world, that still that group energy can have tremendous power uh, to uh, help, uh, you know, help all of us come to this kind of deeper knowing and understanding. Uh, so it's, it's really just something to try. And once you've heard about the, you know, the literature as we express it in Living in a Mindful Universe, um, and I will also say there are other objective sources of truth of this uh, scientific uh, support for reincarnation in the afterlife, if you go to BigelowInstitute.org, uh, you'll find 28 winning essays of a contest held in 2021 by uh, someone saying, what's the best scientific evidence for uh, continuation of conscious awareness after permanent bodily death. And they received uh, 204 essays and they were going to give out three monetary prizes, but the essays were so good, they gave out 28 monetary prizes. And those are all there at BigelowInstitute.org. Go read those papers, read Living in a Mind for Universe, our book, visit sacredacoustics.com. Uh, EvanAlexander.com. These are all resources that will help people get up to speed on every bit of this. And as you become more and more aware of the scientific revolution and the facts and the kind of stories that surround that, then you can use the sacred acoustics meditation uh, to start going deep and uh, start your own journey of discovery. Uh, the other, only other website I'd mention is InnerSanctumCenter.com, I-N-N-E-R SanctumCenter.com. And if you go there and explore it, you'll see multiple different avenues of potential interaction. Many of them are free. Some do require some payment. Uh, it includes a, a, a course for uh, mental health pr uh, practitioners to help in this kind of spiritual healing. Uh, and that course was done with Dr. Anna Yusum, who wrote the book Fulfilled and also did the pilot study in New York using sacred acoustics and showing that 26% reduction in anxiety over two weeks in her patients. Uh, so this is all a kind of a comprehensive package that people can utilize to educate themselves and then also through sacred acoustics to acquire very powerful tools uh, for for growth. 
in addition, the timing is perfect because the 10th anniversary edition of Proof of Heaven has just come out. It has 36 additional pages beyond the original book. Uh, and that helps a lot to explain many of the things that have happened in the decade since Proof of Heaven was published, including uh, tremendous scientific progress in proving the reality of the afterlife and of reincarnation. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson's quote that says, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it isn't real. Right. <laughs> I think that yeah. applies to all of this, right? Right. Well, that's, so, that's good news, especially for materialist neuroscientists and for those who have struggled and struggled and struggled to understand quantum physics, because the deepest mystery of quantum physics has really been that when we examine the fabric of everything around us, you know, the uh, subatomic reality of all the stuff around us, we find that none of it uh, exists in a real form. Uh, as Niels Bohr, the, you know, the head of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics said, all the stuff around us that we call real is made up of little teeny pieces that are decidedly not real. They can be in multiple locations at once. They have no definitive position or momentum simultaneously measured. Uh, there's a lot going on in that uh, subatomic world that shows us that none of it exists independently of the observing mind. That's why quantum physics has been so confusing to materialist science is because there's no way you can explain it when you're not understanding the reality of that primordial mind that connects us all. And that is exactly the way out, as we explain in our book, uh, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, which is greatly supported by some of the leading scientists of consciousness studies in this world today. It's endorsed by Ed Kelly, Jim Tucker, and Bruce Grayson, all from Division of Perceptual Studies, UVA, endorsed by Dean Radin at Noetic Sciences, endorsed by uh, Bernardo Castro, one of the most renowned uh, proponents of idealism in the modern philosophical tradition, and many other scientists involved have endorsed Living in a Mindful Universe because it tells this story in a very profound and advanced way that shows us where this world is headed. And this scientific revolution is uh, following the data, and therefore it's going in one direction. We'll never go backwards into the bleak and paltry fiction of materialist science and its false sense of separation between us. Well, like I love to say, science is catching up with woo-woo. Woo-woo's been around since the beginning of time. I've also heard that you've gotten, that you've been involved in ultrasound technology used in surgery to help healing outside of the body without cutting, basically. Yes, well, that actually, that follows work that I did when I was up at Harvard. I worked on the interoperative MRI project, and we had a lot of interest in robotics and surgery and using ultrasound energy for therapeutic effects. So very different. Everybody knows about ultrasound for imaging. This is not that at all. This is using ultrasound for therapeutic effect. In fact, the imaging uh, in this technology is MRI imaging because with MRI, you can image temperature differences of a few degrees inside the brain. So you can use your ultrasound helmet with a thousand transducers and you can electronically steer the focus inside the brain and use MRI to see where the focus is. And for example, that MR, that uh, ultrasound energy um, in, in a second or so can heat an area to 60 degrees Celsius. If you've got any cancer cells in that area, they die, period. All cancer cells die at that temperature. It takes nothing to kill them all. Uh, so there are some tumors 
that will respond greatly to this kind of ultrasound killing of tumors just through thermal effect. But there are many other ways, far more advanced and sophisticated, to use that same energy. For example, you can use uh, some of the very toxic chemotherapy drugs that have been rejected because of their systemic toxicity, but now put them in, into thermoactive nanoparticles. So the very toxic substance is contained in a, a little a nanosphere, uh, smaller than a cell. Uh, and then as soon as it sails into the energy field of the focused ultrasound, that thermal uh, envelope opens and releases the substance. So you just put that right in the middle of a tumor, for example, that you're imaging with MRI, and you start opening, you inject these uh, nanoparticles intravenously, and they're inert until they flow into the ultrasound field. Then they release all their toxicity right there where you want them to. So it's a very powerful way of doing that. It also has been used to open the blood-brain barrier. Um, and that might be good, for example, for delivering uh, antibodies uh, in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, things like that. So focused, focused ultrasound, as it's called, um, and uh, it's the Focused Ultrasound Foundation. Used to be the Focused Ultrasound Surgery Foundation, based in Charlottesville. Neil Cassell's the head. He's a neurosurgeon, good friend. He's done a great job with his technology. Uh, and in many ways, I mean, there's some limitations to using ultrasound, for example, anywhere where you've got gas, like air in the lungs, very challenging, if not impossible, to get ultrasound to focus with all that air around. But there are other parts of the body where you can go through complete interfaces without any air whatsoever and get to the anatomic structure to treat it with focused ultrasound. Um, and of course, in the brain, you don't have to worry about uh air and gases so much, but you do have to worry about the bone, the skull. That used to be a complete uh, no-go for doing focused ultrasound until a company named Incitec, uh in Israel and another one called, uh, uh, another one based in, in France, and I'm blocking on the name right now, but these two companies, uh, Supersonic Imagine was the name of that French company, but the two of them came up with ways using high-speed computing to send uh, energy from a thousand ultrasound transducers in this big helmet around the head into a brain focus. And what they do is a high resolution CT map of the skull so that they can mathematically uh, back focus and correct to the transducer so that all those sound waves are hitting and, and, and resonating bam, bam, bam in very powerful fashion. They're focused by having all the transducers hit their peaks in this anatomic location at the same time. So that's where focused ultrasound has some real tremendous power to revolutionize uh, medicine. It's also being used just as a neuromodulator. So in other words, not even using thermal properties, but more the mechanical properties of ultrasound waves in the brain to turn on and off various neural circuits. So it's a very powerful dynamic way of interacting with the brain and testing certain models of function by being able to turn on and off various neuronal circuits. So focus and it's available is now? A, a very powerful technology. The what? It's available now or it's still yeah, focused hasn't been approved? It's been available. For example, it was FDA cleared uh, uh, for uterine fibroids, you know, 12, 15 years ago, somewhere back in the, in the past. And slowly uh, work has been done. For example, I know Jeff Elias, who's a very good functional neurosurgeon at UVA, uh, has completed a pilot study using focused ultrasound uh, in the treatment of essential tremor. And that is a very powerful technique. Um, 
without having to put any kind of probe or electrode into the brain, you're able to manipulate these brain circuits and treat something as uh, onerous as, uh, you know, essential tremor. And, and, and of course, then you've got things like Parkinson's, et cetera, uh, that could also become targets for uh, focused ultrasound. Uh, so anyway, it's, uh, it's being uh, uh, used in increasingly powerful ways, but I would say a good information repository is the focused ultrasound uh, foundation. Uh, go there, based in Charlottesville, Virginia, as I said, uh, donate to their cause, what have you. Uh, it's going to be revolutionary in medicine at large. Okay, terrific. Even though I'm not in that industry anymore, it's still like you can't, you know, you can't get the curiosity out of me as a surgical device inventor. So I love hearing about new stuff coming on. Thanks for and thanks for educating us a little bit on that. Absolutely, you bet. My pleasure. One last question for you: Why do we incarnate? I think it's all a process of becoming one with the divine, a process of know thyself. Written, that's what's written at the entrance to the temple of Apollo at Delphi in Greece. Know thyself. And that's essentially what our existence is all about. Learning to know our relationship with the universe at large, any meaning and purpose that we might share, uh, that sense of connection we have with others, especially prominent in these kind of discussions and experiences. It's all about oneness of mind and our discovery that our mind is nothing more than the mind of the universe at large which we share in this process of growth and transformation of consciousness itself. Well, I encourage everybody listening to listen to this more than once because we've got a lot of information for you to unpack and and uh, be able to to go. We'll, we'll post all those links and everything that you talked about. So everybody, thanks for joining us. Sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama, where I am, and North Carolina, too. And Virginia. See, Virginia, okay, in Virginia. And we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Julie. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.